it will be very interesting to see how the next uh, four or five months go. Because it's, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of pent up energy on the right. And my sense is I think there's going to be some deflated energy on the left. And, uh, and yet there's going to be some demand that they govern from a position that, I mean, when you think about this election, they, the Democrats lost all in the House and they lost in the Senate. And after four years of numerous impeachment inquiries and this guy is a tool of Russia and just wall-to-wall media, they like beat him by this much. And if it wasn't for the coronavirus, I think everyone can plainly see that this thing is that he wins. He wins Pennsylvania and he wins Michigan and he wins Wisconsin and he wins Georgia and North Carolina. You know, in other words, every state that was close that he lost, he wins. That's a huge landslide. Yeah. And, uh, well, that's the important takeaway is that they have lost ground. So basically what the Democrats did with the help of the coronavirus and the panics and the media and the well, of course, the media. That's just that's like Democrats. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, with 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 those things together, they convinced enough people that Trump was worse than they are. But they convinced very very few people that they aren't bad bad bad, and that other people, right. not Trump, are better in office than they are. So they uh, well, but they didn't lose control of the house, though, did they? No, no, no. But it is it's. It, it, they didn't have a giant majority, right? Uh, and it will be it will be smaller. And on on certain things, they may not be able to get there, depending on what they are and and how you know how risk adverse uh, not how risk adverse, but how much congressmen they're all risk adverse. How much they see it as taking a risk. In other words, uh, you know, Pelosi, if she's a smart floor manager will not be putting bills up that she thinks, you know, 10% of her caucus is going to is going to go south on. But but all of a sudden the calculations she has about what can fly on the floor and what can't have been changed by this election. And does she withstand uh, c- competition for her power? Is she apt to lose her seat as ch- speaker of the house? I don't think so. I don't think so because I think there's enough kind of power in into the into the Democratic caucus already invested in members. I think there are people on the more moderate uh, Democratic side scared to death about going that if the progressives get a hold on them that they'll lose their seat next time. I mean, you know, you'd like to think that they think it would be disastrous for the country. They don't give a damn. But if it's disastrous for their seat, now we're talking some serious consequences. And uh, and so I do think that she probably will uh, get reelected. I think it's also interesting. You, though, you mean re- resume her uh, position in seat, right? Reelected speaker. Reelected as speaker. Oh, okay, that's I mean, all right. Okay. Elected to the Congress, but yeah. but the Democratic Caucus will vote, and if they decide she's speaker, then all the Democrats, which are the majority, will vote for her, and she wins. Um, and there could always be some resistance. You know, there was res- resistance two years ago, and she ended up, as as people may not remember, but she ended up basically having to say she's okay with, you know, serving three more terms as speaker and that there should be 
uh, term limits. And, you know, I'm sure she'll go south on that that pledge whenever it suits her. But it's it is interesting to me. Democrats, you know, if, if you poll term limits, Republicans, independents, Democrats, they're all for it. Every demographic group, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, male, female, every other gender, um, every every demographic group except politicians. So it's not like Democrats don't like term limits. They love term limits. Democratic politicians have always been on the other side because when term limits got going and got, you know, kind of reached the critical mass public wise, uh, Democrats had been in the Congress for 40 years and Republicans used it effectively to boot them out of the majority. Of course, then Newt Gingrich and others didn't do what you know, anything to help term limits. They did everything to undercut it because uh, now that they were in power, who who needs term limits? But um, but it, it seems to me the um, the the cachet of term limits, the reach of it, more and more Democrats, even elected officials and even apparatchiks, the hacks, folks like me uh, who are you know into politics all the time, work in politics those Democrats are starting to see the value of term limits in states where Republicans are the majority and there just aren't open seats or even when Democrats are the majority. If you're if you're a progressive Democrat uh, in a less progressive state or a moderate Democrat in a more progressive state, when do you get the Democratic official who's in who you don't happen to like very much out? Well, then maybe never if you don't have term limits. But the uh, squad got reelected to Congress. I think all of them, the three or four, whatever we call the squad, AOC and company, and the evil Ilhan Omar. Uh, but, you know, I don't think AOC is exactly evil, but I think Ilhan Omar is evil. I don't know if evil is, is the right term, but, but boy, wh- why do we still not know whether she married her brother or helped this other guy get into the country? Is there no investigation of people who do things that just seem like this violates all known laws? I mean, I don't know if people have read and I've read numerous articles. They they never in the and the uh, Star Tribune in Minneapolis did some investigation. They didn't really come up to the answers. Uh, why? And, and what's being alleged is that she married her brother, which would be kind of against the law in the U.S., um, but that it might have been that she married him to help him get into the country. And there's been different things alleged. And I just don't know why. One, I don't know why it isn't kind of a big story, because it seems like if we know a congressman's you know, accused of all this kind of stuff, it'd be kind of a big story. And um, but somehow it's not. But also we can't get the answers. Well, why, why can't we get the answers? Couldn't someone say, well, wait a second, that's a crime. Gee, Mr. Investigator at the FBI or whatever appropriate, you know, alphabetical group investigates, why wouldn't there be an investigation? And let's get to the bottom of whether she committed some sort of immigration fraud or didn't. And let's if she didn't, let's clear her name. It's only fair. We're way beyond all that. I don't what 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 <laughs> epoch of humanity are you living through? I don't think that, <laughs> I just don't see it. I don't see it happening. Just like I don't really see uh, any of the very credible 
or very many of the very credible cases for mass voter fraud this time around, this week, uh, in favor of Joe Biden sticking. The lack of down-ballot votes in Georgia and Michigan and a number of other places for the Democratic senators, uh, to me, this is almost a pure indicator of corruption. But it's hard to prove, right? I mean, you can say that, but what I have is a theory. But it could be something else. And in the wake of something else, that they're going to yammer and, and people are going to take sides partisan-wise, and it, it ends it. it. Because it never ends. Well, and and you do have to have some some evidence. I mean, things can look funny, but that's not a, that's never enough to say. Well, we have to you know we have to vacate the election or something. You then would investigate and see is there anything that can really be shown to have been done. Georgia, it's out of just specific precincts. It's not yeah, just. See, it's that, not just. That does the, need to be. You need to look into certain things like that. And it's 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 one thing. Sometimes there's there's irregularities. Well, sometimes people vote in irregular ways, but other times it it needs to be explained. For instance, there was the story. There was a Federalist story about in the middle of the night on election night. Uh, I guess it was the wee hours, so it would have been the day after the election. Um, about a hundred thousand votes just got added to Biden's total in in Michigan. Now you can imagine that was just oh we made a arithmetic error we fixed it whatever who knows what it was that could be totally innocent. In fact, I suspect it was. I suspect there is an explanation, but let's find out what it is. And it seems like our media again is always so quick to want to tell us what's okay to ask or not ask or just. Give us the facts. If someone comes up with some cockamamie conspiracy theory, just give us the facts on it. And if there are none, we know what to do with conspiracy theories where there's no evidence whatsoever that it's true um, and and let people make their decisions. So, it, it you know, I also heard uh, right before we started taping that uh, there was a glitch in the software of one of the counties in Michigan. I don't know if you've heard this yet. Uh, and there was like a 6,000 Republican votes that were put over to the Democrat. And I don't know if they have straight ticket voting in Maine. Most places are in uh, Michigan. Most places don't. Um, so I'm, I'm a little, I'm wondering when they say 6,000 Republican votes to Democrat, is that at every office or, or what have you? But that's what I heard on the uh, on the television news. And um, and it's it's interesting because they they then pointed out that 47 counties in Michigan use the software. So, you you know, I mean, it seems to me you're almost honor bound now to do an investigation of, you know, do a recount in those 47 counties. So, yeah, um, yeah. No, all of, as you know, I don't believe any electronic voting system. I don't believe we have any reason to believe any electronic voting systems. I don't believe they should exist. I believe that we're chumps for believing it, for doing it. You know, we succeeded without, for hundreds of years without having to have... Seem, and it doesn't seem like elections have been run any smoother since we have them. No. Although it does, I've, I've heard people say there's nothing that prevents us from having electronic voting machines and a verifiable paper record, you know, that 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 we can feel like can be checked. Um, and I don't know all the ins and outs of that. Maybe they were just, you know, blowing smoke, but it, it sure seems to me that having machines of greater technology ought not to stop us from having the same transparency 
and comfortable, you know, accountability that we had in the past. Well, we're a few minutes into this conversation this week, uh, and uh, we haven't introduced ourselves. We haven't introduced the show. We haven't introduced what you do for a living. I mean, we, who knows what people out there are thinking? Uh, this is this week in common sense. You're yeah, Paul. I'm going to run shut the door before someone yells up the stairs at me. So okay, give me a chance to uh, let you go out of the room and me to say this is this week in common sense. The person not you're not looking at on the screen right there. Oh, he's coming back on screen. There he is. That's Paul Jacob. Uh, he has a piece coming out in Newsmax here pretty quick on term limits. December. In December. And uh, this is commonsense.org is where you write uh, five days a week, you write a column. And uh, we're going to talk about each one of those columns, I guess. And uh, this is for the first full week of November uh, in 2020, which is a big week in the we uh, year. We've had coronavirus and now we have an election. And they seem to be both uh, a little bit... Uh, fraught with anxiety and conflict and disagreement and here we are yeah you know one thing i wonder and it's just just wonderment but i wonder how coronavirus will be covered in the next months next few weeks and especially after january 20th or 21st whatever the day is that that uh, biden will be inaugurated and it certainly looks like uh biden is the winner uh, that he's going to he's going to push over to take away the majorities and gain the majority in Pennsylvania. Uh, looks like in Georgia, uh, which is a little more surprising, not so surprising in Pennsylvania. Uh, but that in the end, he'll he'll, uh, you know, Biden will clearly not just get to 270 to 268. It looked for a while I had I had gone through the states. You know, they have these things online where you can pick the different states. And the night before the election, I went through and picked what I thought would happen. I actually gave uh, Biden Arizona, uh, and I thought Trump would win Pennsylvania, but I did not think he would win uh, Wisconsin or Michigan. In fact, I didn't think they'd be, it'd be as close as they were in both those states. But I also thought the second district in Nebraska, where they have the one congressional district, uh, or well, all their congressional districts like Maine, can can go the other way if one if their district votes for Biden, which the second district of Nebraska did. Then, then Biden gets one of the five electoral votes in, in Nebraska, just like uh, Trump got one of the four in Maine by winning the second congressional district there. I predicted that Trump would win both of those and that it would end up being a 269 to 269 tie, which would then go to the House of Representatives, which then, even though Democrats control the chamber, they vote by state and Republicans control more state. Uh, majorities in the in the Congress, so likely would have gone to Trump. Um, but then when I saw that district in Nebraska went for Biden, and with with Biden winning Arizona and, and the way it was shaking up, I was thinking this could be 270 to 268. Doesn't look like it'll be that way, but an incredibly incredibly close election, and. I'm sure a lot of people, you know, people can say what it means exactly. I, I think there's a couple of things, and, and we're kind of talking about Monday's piece because I talked about the next election. And the next election is almost always, you know, kind of uh, jumping off from the last election. And I think what we've, what we've seen, this election certainly was a jump off from 2016. Since 2016, that election has been prosecuted, so to speak, uh, for four years, 
I think it's whatever you think of Donald Trump. Um, and I think both positive and negative things about him. Um, and I suspect most people do. Uh, but whatever you think, I think it's fair to say he has taken more incoming flack from the media. And, and look, you can argue it's all deserved or none deserved. I'm just saying he's taken more incoming flack from the media than any person in world history. And I don't mean just going backwards. I mean going forward. <laughs> all of history. No one will ever take as much incoming flack. Um, and yet, the needle barely moved. I mean, if you look at it, it was the tiniest difference in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. And of course, you didn't need all of those. The tiniest difference in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, or Arizona. I mean, you picked your states, it, and, it, and, and Trump wins. And so, to me, I think it, one, it sends a signal that the media does not have the sort of power you, I mean, we, we all kind of recognize it's awesome power. It's awesome power. And of course, the media is a zillion different people and so on. So it's, it's not as if it's just press the button and all the power of the media, you know, sails forth. But as, a, as an institution, as the fourth estate, it is incredibly powerful and yet not powerful enough to change the minds of people. In other words, an awful lot of Americans, myself, yourself, I suspect almost everybody listening to this, if you're at all a media junkie, like I sort of am, less so than I used to be, uh, through sheer punishment, and uh, you have to kind of look at it and say, wow, it, it doesn't, you know, you would think that Trump was going to lose big. And, and it wasn't just the polls, because I think the polls do have some impact on how people think. But I also think that the polls, it was tough to poll because a climate was created in America in which you were going to face all kinds of repercussions from your family, from the neighbors. From, and it depends maybe where you lived. I have a lot of friends. I grew up in Arkansas. And I realize sometimes talking to my friends, especially my friends who just thought, you know, Trump was a madman and terrible and and going to become a dictator and freedom and democracy was, you know, uh, here here for a brief second and gone. Um, and it, I realized, you know, it, it just I thought, how, how do people see it that way? And I realized, well, I live in an area in the kind of the country in which people are very reluctant to wear a Trump hat or a shirt or a bumper because they don't know that someone might, you know, throw an egg at their car or chew them out at the store or, you know, I mean, there could be all kinds of repercussions. And, and where I live, I'm not aware of any of those. I'm just saying in this, you know, you get a little closer to Washington and you might be accosted by BLM uh, uh, folks that uh, trying to eat dinner. So, so it's, it's, uh, I think that created a situation in which you had this undercurrent, uh, sort of like I think today, if you were to do a poll in China, that you'd find a tremendous amount of support for the Chinese government. If you somehow were able to free all these people and convince them that, oh, no, you're free, there's no repercussions, those poll results might really change really quickly. 
And of course, it's not quite the same thing in the United States, but it's the, the point is people think for themselves, not just brilliant nuclear physicists, people, all people think for themselves and they size things up and they read between the lines. And so the power of the media is much more in the stories they tell than in the spin they give to it. And the more the media has spun, the more that's true and the more people read through that spin. And the new thing, which I think gives rise to just conspiracy theories out the yin-yang, is, is the fact that we, I think anyone who's looking at the media realizes there's certain stories we're just not going to get. For instance, during Obama's time, if you wanted to know anything about the IRS scandal, where they were literally blocking people from being able to start nonprofit groups to reach out and associate politically with their fellow Americans. Hard to think of a more serious, at the heart of political activity, a more serious attack by the federal government. And yet for most of the media, it was no scandal at all. It was a mistake. Bringing it up was rude. Uh, that was kind of how they viewed it. In fact, any mistake Obama made to bring it up is just rude. I mean, that's kind of how the media treated it. And now the media treats it as any thought we have about what Trump could possibly do should be on the front page as likely future news. In fact, in Monday's piece of the next election, as a little aside, I pointed out that doesn't it seem like we hardly get any news about what happened in our world yesterday? And instead, like story after story in the newspaper is what's going to happen tomorrow? It's as if we don't have people, you know, hunting down the news to report it. We've got people dreaming it up to report it. And maybe they get the help sometimes of scientists who can develop super duper models that tell us exactly. I mean, we, we don't know what the weather's going to do today, but boy, in a hundred years, we have it down to a fine science of exactly what's going to happen. And, and I don't say this to, to poo poo every model. And it's just that we've gotten so incredibly unscientifically in love with the political term science. And um, and and we've we've allowed our media to become totally propaganda, um, and it's 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 a problem because we don't we don't seem to have any media that is kind of just the facts. I love all the opinion, and I and and the truth is, I think we'd be better off even in the world we live in in terms of media wise if the media was a little bit more upfront about where they are. That we're a we're a democratic newspaper. Used to be that was much more the case. Even when even when they didn't try to color the news like they do today, they would they would kind of admit on their editorial page we're a democratic paper or a Republican or an independent. Well, the newspapers used to be named things like the Republican right. or the Democrat. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that that does kind of give it away, doesn't it? I think there are scientists of a sort who are figuring out what the media is, is saying and they figured out that prophecy is a really, really, really popular business. 
the, the, the this is a business model that really sells because people like prophecies. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been involved in a religion that had prophecies in it, but they're very popular. And that's what the news is now giving, is that they're giving prophecies because those really have meat and they excite the imagination. And it's part of the religion. I mean, politics is now religion, and, and we don't have the luxury of having a rational discussion about politics anymore because it's all really two religious factions going at each other. And uh, that's not a recipe for concord. And the media is pretty much on one side. I remember being a teenager, and uh, one of my goals was to be on Tom Snyder's Tomorrow program. It was on at midnight. You know, I was a Nighthawk, and so I'm watching it. And he would have guests on, and they would discuss, like, issues and thoughts and the, the book he wrote and different things. And, and I remember radio programs where they would talk about different things. And they might have guests from different uh, issues, pro and con, you know, kind of a crossfire thing, but not necessarily quite as screaming at each other. And uh, it seems like now everything is, from, from a television standpoint, but, you know, you don't have discussions in the newspaper in the same way. Uh, and even radio much more a monologue, not as much discussion. But on TV especially, you've got, and it started in my mind, I, I hearken back to the Clinton time, where you would have people come out and defend the blue dress and defend anything Clinton did, and and then people attack. And, and so you had all these hacks, all these folks who, they're basically paid to argue that blue is red, you, you pay them, they go on TV and say, look, you see it as blue, but it's red. It's clearly red. We have that sort of journalism on every issue. And I think about the court issue and court packing. And why aren't we discussing how we should reform the court? What we do as a society is no longer discuss amongst themselves. You know, the old, uh, hey, discuss among yourselves. They don't tell us to do that anymore. We're not supposed to discuss among ourselves. We just listen like spectators and choose sides. We can be on the red team or the blue team. And that's a recipe for disaster. We will get no good policies suggested by either the red team or the blue team. And they will do the only policies they'll agree on will be horrible for us. Uh, the only thing worse than gridlock is water in Washington is when they agree. And we have to be in the equation. We have to be in the discussion. And not only is our political system failing us by not giving us the democratic checks and balances, by not giving us the dialogue in the public sphere, but the media is doubling down on it. The media is not our friend in the sense of being there to help the people discuss and determine issues. They think they're experts like everyone else. We live in a society in which all our teachers are experts. Everybody's an expert. We just do what all the experts say. And the least expertise people in the world are the people on TV. And they act like they're the most not. I mean, they're the ones who are telling you how stupid it is to wear a mask as if they studied this forever when they don't know anything about it. And then the next day they're telling you how you must wear the mask because it's so important. And again, acting like somehow they're the fountain of all knowledge when they're reading a cue card. Um, and 
that's that's what we're getting. We're getting a society in which we're spectators, and if the popcorn tastes good, and uh, they keep you know keep putting money in your bank account, I guess it can go on for some time. But it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be a, a great free country uh, like I think it it can be. And it's and I think I think people recognize. And, and sometimes, you know, there's so much hype about everything. We always want everything to be, oh, America's finished, you know. And, and I don't tend to subscribe to those kinds of, you know, dour predictions always. But I think we all recognize that, uh, that we're, we're, we've been on some ground that we haven't been on before. And that I think we'd all feel more comfortable if we could get back to some ground that, that feels like the ground that we've always been walking on. And, and that's not a go back. We're not going back anywhere, but we are looking for some solid ground. And to me, that is citizens being engaged and not some brilliant superstar who's going to save it all for us. And, and frankly, that's the biggest, I mean, that was always the biggest turnoff for me about Trump is his view as himself as the superstar and the guy who could fix everything. Because unless you have a process, unless you have more buy-in than one guy, you know, well, you're finished the second that guy isn't there. Which we kind of saw because he didn't get a lot of good people around him. I mean, he had people who were actively working against his agenda uh, and against the promises that he'd made. Uh, And uh, but, you know, there's one thing that you're, you're in a sense kind of wrong about because there is a place in our society where people are talking at great length and actually very intelligently and it's on the web i mean the joe rogan podcast sometimes goes out for episodes that are three hours long lex friedman has uh is a a very thoughtful gentleman they just all these people who do amazing things online and uh and in comparison to the major news media that people see on the tv which barely even exists and you know there's a separate entity but it is there still uh these people are just light years away from them and above them and we're trying to contribute our own little way to that that little discourse but uh no but that that's a good point tim because it's you're you're right there it's out there um and maybe that's part of it and you know so, so often you're thinking how do we over you know how do we get the post office to do right how do we get it to where our mail and then you look back 10 years later and you realize you never did get it to do right but you just shot way over the post office and are doing something totally different now that just makes that no longer cumbersome, no longer a problem. And, uh, and that's kind of, I think, how we have to think about a lot of the political stuff. And, and uh, we can cry about, you know, the old media not having the investigative journalism to hold government accountable. Well, we, no, no use crying about it. Let's find out who can. And oftentimes what we're finding is that a small group of people, an incredibly small group of people, can do big things uh, with a publication now. Uh, that, that two people, one person, looking at what's happening in their town governmentally and digging can have a tremendous effect and doesn't have to compete head-to-head with the New York Times or the St. Louis Post-Dispatch or the, in other words, you can, if you're living in St. Louis right now, you can do 
journalism without having to necessarily go to head to head with those papers because you can create your own niche. And and it just seems like more and more people who love freedom need to figure out how to how, how do we get involved and how do we become the new media? So do you think you've covered uh, Monday's piece? I haven't because I haven't told people that one of the best things that happened on Tuesday was that three states, legislators in two states, North Dakota and Arkansas, put measures on the ballot to make it much harder to pass initiatives, petition stuff on the ballot and get it passed. And in Florida, a wealthy somebody or other with some group, nobody knows exactly who put the money in. Uh, but spent millions of dollars to put a measure on the ballot to require Florida voters, if they want to pass a constitutional amendment, must pass it by 60% once, and then they wanted to make them come back and pass it by 60% a second time. And the voters voted that down. They voted down the, the thing in North Dakota that would have allowed the legislature to veto a vote of the people and require them to vote a second time. People said, you know, Thanks, but no thanks. We don't need to be vetoed by our our own servants. And in Arkansas, basically, they were just looking at new ways to make it tougher, change the deadline, move it back, uh, give people less time, uh, make it more onerous. And voters voted that down, too. So Citizens in Charge, group I work with and head up, uh, was involved in those three states and uh, and feel pretty good that that voters were able to stop uh, much better funded efforts to try to take away our our ability to check government. And, you know, so often we talk about what's happening at the national level, and obviously it's, it's pretty important. But so much of what I think we're able to do to impact what's happening nationally is not to sit as spectators. It's important for us to witness it and to think about it and to discuss it and to figure out you know, responses to it. But most of the political work that can move Washington is at the grassroots, at the local level, at the state level. What we did in the 90s with term limits had more impact on Republicans taking the majority from Democrats after 40 years than anything we could have done walking around the halls of Congress, you know, whispering in politicians' ears. Um, And and I think that's true on, on all kinds of issues. Look at look at what's happened with uh, marijuana, especially. But but, uh, you know, Oregon passed a measure to make it to where you don't go to jail for hard drugs. You have a kind of a deferment program where you can get help. And uh, and, you know, there's been all kinds of change on that. It wouldn't have I don't think anything would have happened on marijuana legalization and other drug issues if we didn't have the initiative and if people weren't able to take those issues directly to the voters, because politicians have this tendency to worry about themselves first. We all actually have that tendency just for the record, but they are, they're an open book about it. And of course they're worried about who's going to, who's going to hurt me. If I vote to legalize drugs, well, I'm going to have the people who their son you know, died from some overdose, they're going to be mad at me. And how, who's going to vote against me because I didn't, because I'm anti-drug. And so they've calculated that that's the better position for them politically, not because it's where the majority lies, 
but it's where the least political risk to them. Because they're, they're not worried about the guy who might be mad at them. They're worried about the guy who might be mad at them and do something about it and help somebody run against them and defeat them. You're now talking about Feds Not Wanted uh, that was printed on Friday, November 6th. You're right. And we'll, we'll flip around to that because it, it, these, these issues show how critical it is that we not allow everything to be monopolized by legislators and that we have that safety valve to be able to say, look, um, on this issue, we're going to decide it directly. And it does mean like, like, I, you know, I didn't like the idea of throwing Medicaid money all over the place and getting states um, to put all these people on their Medicaid rolls. And then, you know, 10 years from now, who knows, they're going to have this huge uh, cost. And I think government ought to be letting people do more for themselves, not paying everybody's way for everything. But if you have the initiative, what they in several states, people came up who wanted to spread that Medicaid. It was popular. They put it on the ballot. They passed it. Now, I could look at that like I think some Republican political people do and say, well, we need to get rid of the initiative process so that we can just control everything in the legislature. Well, that's kind of short-sighted because you're going to get voted out of office eventually, hopefully, if if your basic goal is to stop the people from getting what they want. The proper response would be to try to educate people that, no, that's not what we want instead of blowing up the process. But again and again, and it, it, you know, when d- Democrats control the legislatures and people do conservative measures through the initiative, the first reaction is let's blow up the process so they, they can't do what we don't want them to do. And when Republicans control the legislature, that's their first thought when, when more liberal measures pass. We have to have this process to keep politicians in check. If, if issues pass that I don't like, that's the cost of, of having a process that isn't totally controlled. I mean, we might all like to have a benign you know, dictatorship where we're the benign dictator. Uh, that's not, I think, very plausible. And, and so the initiative process, when you look at the things that it has enabled, the reforms, uh, political reforms especially, but things like drug legalization, um, we need that that check on our our government and that opportunity to choose a way that our legislators wouldn't choose for us. And, uh, and one of the things we, we point out in this piece, feds not wanted is that it's not just about legalization being, uh, you know, something that people want more freedom. They do. Uh, we point out in this that, you know, The best reason is to make people more responsible for their own lives. But the other aspect of this is that it is federalism being played in a way that the grassroots is saying to the federal government, no, it's nullification. As you pointed out uh, when we were talking about it last week, it's nullification. It's just not it's not nullification on racial issues or something else. And it's not nullification because some politician said, no, we're not going to go along. It is the mass of the electorate stepping up and saying, no, we're not going along with the federal government. And I think it's one of the beautiful things about uh, the, the whole drug issue has been the way 
that it just seemed to be universal. Drugs need to be illegal. And then as people started to confront the issue and initiatives are the reason, I think if these debates had all happened in legislatures, that most people would have never engaged in them. They would have never thought it through. And, and, you know, I, I'd love to think that every American is just a libertarian free spirit who says, hey, if you want to put that in your body, that's your right. But that's not what happened. It was, a, it was people deciding for all kinds of different reasons that the best thing for their neighbors, for their society was to have drugs legalized. And now it's not just medical marijuana, it's legalizing marijuana and it is decriminalizing hard drugs and they're legalizing psilocybin mushrooms. And, they're, and I, think, I think people have learned. And that's, that's the, the, the democratic process or one aspect of the democratic process that if we are always spectators screaming for the blue team or the red team and never engaged in the process ourselves, we just, we don't grow as people. We don't think, we don't get to a new place. We're so busy arguing about little petty personality things um, and, and being upset because of the way somebody said something or, you know, and, and we miss the whole policy debates and the policies are what governments are. And so anyway, it, it, uh, it, it's interesting to see after this election, uh, and maybe we should, we should jump into the, uh, the other piece, the best indicator, uh, because after an election like this, I think there are a lot of things that can be said nationally about the impact of the media, about the fact that all the attacks on Trump, and yet he seemed to be right where he was before. Nothing changed in terms of nobody's mind seemed to be changed hardly in the country. Uh, but the best indicators were ballot measures, because here people aren't voting on personality. They're not voting with their team necessarily. And what we mean by that is in California, which is, you know, deep blue, uh, which is, is one of the places where you hear the most about, you know, all kinds of racial justice and, and we need, uh, we need reparations. We need to change all of society to rectify, you know, past racial harm and so on. Uh, well, back in the 1990s, California passed Proposition 209. And Proposition 209 said no racial preferences in employment, in education, um, and, and no gender preferences. And so the left, uh, supported by almost everybody on, in the Democratic Party and all the usual suspects and also people like Facebook and, and uh, kind of the woke corporations in California got together and spent $30 million to essentially repeal the ban on affirmative action and to say, yes, you can use race and racial preferences and gender preferences in making these decisions. $30 million spent against $1.5 million. So you're looking at, you know, better than 15, 20 to one, basically. And, um, and California voters voted down Prop 16 and said, no, we don't want racial preferences. So 
So this whole push that we have to we have to have a new view on race that recognizes race as everything and that we have to constantly make all our decisions based on race in order to get rid of race and racism was rejected in arguably as blue a state as there is anywhere in the country. And of course, I also bring up Kamala Harris's late campaign pitch that said, no, uh, equality isn't really enough, equality of opportunity. We need equity. We need equality of outcome. And what is equality of outcome? Except, in fact, socialism, which is the word that comes to mind, and socialism works, but I think more people would see it as just straight out communism. Um, This, you know, this is something that is said and repeated and repeated as if it is the truth and as if it has huge public support. And yet it doesn't have public support. It doesn't have public support where they live, much less in a country that, you know, in the red parts of the country, they don't even pretend it has support. But the reality is it does not have support in the blue parts of the country. So you might think that uh, the key to all this would be to somehow break many of these issues off from partisan politics and see if we can deal with more and more of them issue by issue, according to the principles we all understand, that this was an effective way of countering democratic power, because Democrats really are on the side right now of pushing statism, of increasing the the scope and power of the state. That, that's their main goal. Uh, and it's pretty obvious that they do it on a number of grounds, just like you mentioned with Kamala Harris. Uh, but if we can do more issues like this, that would really... Uh, that would change things dramatically, perhaps. I, I think it would. Um, and this, of course, this was this issue came at us in the sense that the other side was doing it. But oftentimes, uh, what's the saying? Never interrupt your uh, uh, your opponent when they're making a mistake. And sometimes the other side doing a dumb initiative is a wonderful thing, and we should take full advantage. But we have to have that process. And we have to be willing to accept that other people are going to use the process and we have to step up and say no sometimes. And I know that a lot of times the business community, it's another cost to doing business. So they don't want it. Democracy is another cost to doing business. And it's short sighted. And and look, I'm a I'm a capitalist. I love people making money, but there's nothing about making money that says you have to be short-sighted and do stupid stuff that leaves you less free. Uh, that, that doesn't seem to, to be a real profit. And, uh, and so you want these processes that keep government in check because it, you know, you can write it down, you can write the constitution down. You got to have some process to make the government actually abide by the constitution. And you can say, well, we have courts. Well, the courts issue the wrong decision. What do you do? Well, we can elect new people. Well, we elect new people and new people and new people. And none of them will do what we want. Because once they're in, they've got they've got their own interest. We need, and especially when you think of issues like term limits, the Congress is not term limiting themselves. Legislators are not term limiting themselves. 
they're not going to make other reforms that cut against their power. We have to have a way to do that. And these initiative processes at the state and local level have just been a wonderful source of reform. And without them, I mean, I would, I would rather have the democratic process to protect myself and to engage in the political process in a way that can check power than I would to have some constitutional provision. Because if there's no way to protect that constitutional provision, it's just a bunch of words on a piece of paper. And now there's no reason not to have both. But but uh, this this kind of short sighted, gee, if the other side won an election, let's destroy that process by which they won. That's that's a recipe for disaster. When was the last time a state offered its citizens the chance to uh, put a measure on the ballot? I mean, because it has to start somewhere, and it has to, and, and if you don't have it, the legislature has to do it, and the governor has to sign on to it, right? So, when was the yes, last time that happened? In uh, there's two answers to that kind of. <clears throat> the first answer is that the last time a state added the initiative process was Mississippi in 1993, but they actually did it if my if I remember correctly in 1913. They passed through their legislature an initiative process, and voters used it to go after the railroad. And the railroad, which controlled a lot of the legislators and apparently the courts, all of a sudden that initiative was struck down, and the courts decided that they didn't really have the enabling legislation they needed, and therefore that initiative process just stood there completely unusable for literally 80 years. And in 1993, a lieutenant governor who wanted initiative and referendum got pushed the legislature and got them to actually write rules and so on. And all of a sudden, Mississippi has, a, has an initiative process. The initiative process that came before that was in the 1970s, uh, in a push for uh, sunshine laws and campaign reform, Florida pushed through. Uh, and I want to say it was Lawton Childs, uh, but I'm not 100% sure I'm correct about that. But it was in the, uh, in the 1970s, and, uh, and that was the last state to get it. And, so, and most of those states just have, uh, just have a constitutional amendment process. They don't have a statutory process. I thought Florida had both. No, just just an amendment process. And, oh, and is that why they keep on doing weird things with uh, p- putting in obviously not constitutional issues as constitutional issues in their in their initiative? Yes, yes, because the it, issues you want to do as a statute you can't do, and it's also why the people who hate the initiative block any attempt to get a statutory initiative because they want to always argue against the initiative that they're protecting the constitution. Now, the best way they could protect the Constitution is allow people to put their measures into law without putting them in the Constitution. They refuse. But uh, but and I also am of the belief that certain measures seem more constant, you know, the, the right stuff for constitutions and others really should be statute. But any but constitutions are there for one reason. They're a way for the people to mandate what government's going to do. It's law above the legislature. 
So the legislature can't touch that law without first coming to us. That's really the purpose of a constitution, is to put law above the legislature. And so when the legislature is actively trying to block you from doing things, your only recourse is to put that law above them. And that's why if, if you want to do something that really kind of should be statutory, but you believe your legislature is not respectful of the voters, then you have every right to put that in the Constitution because that's where it belongs, because that's where everything belongs that we can't trust the legislature with. Well, certainly in my state, that's happened a lot. Uh, the people in Washington state repeatedly put tax limitation, especially and car tab limitations, this kind of, just over and over and over again. And the legislature is, they screw around with it every, every chance they get. It's, it's very we, vexing. It's very vexing. I mean, it, everybody kind of hates the legislature and yet they vote these t- same turkeys in over and over again. Yeah. Well, they, they, like our, our national elections, sometimes they see bad people on both sides, but uh, no, it, it, it's, it's almost uncanny that our legislatures are so adversarial and there's always been a certain amount of, you know, damn politicians and, you know, and, and so they, in America, there's kind of an adversarial and there's always going to be with government because they have power. They're telling us what to do. But the level of animosity and adversarialness, the the fact that it's not just, you know, some people, but almost everyone who sees the legislature as unfriendly territory, as the last place that anyone would represent you, when that's their whole job is to represent us. And I mean, I've for years have talked about representative government has become a euphemism for unrepresentative government. And that's the, the problem. We've talked about small districts and so on. But when, when, I'm, when I'm talking to people about initiative and referendum, sometimes folks will say, well, we need the initiatives to better engage with the legislature and to include the legislature more so that they won't be as adversarial. But, you know, almost uh, lots of legislatures, lots of initiative processes in different states have like a, a indirect process that you go to the legislature first and then they can take action on it. In most of these processes, the legislature never does anything with it. It's like they, they don't want anything to do with it because they have their own stuff and this is somehow not legitimate. And on the other hand, occasionally they play games with it. They want to put up a counter proposal, and and frankly, we can't trust them. We we really have to get to a, a point at some point where the people representing us can be trusted slightly, and we feel like occasionally they might represent us. And neither of those is is true today. But but I I don't know. I just I I think about. Um, the, the legislature after legislature, you go in and you talk to people and their view is that the everything outside the Capitol is out there and that really they have been somehow not only ordained by the voters, but ordained by God somehow, kind of like the divine right of kings 
to make the decisions for the great unwashed masses, kind of. And and that's sometimes they'll tell you that's what a republic is, like that the difference between a republic and a democracy. Your your dog's getting back in. <laughs> I see your screen just moving a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, something happened in the house that wasn't caused by me or him, so he decides he has to go look at it. I'm hoping that he doesn't decide that he needs to uh, increase the liquid or uh, solid content of my I, carpets downstairs. I all know where that's going, so we'll. Uh... Anyway, now, now I did lose my train of thought, but uh, it it is it the the level of disdain I have for my experiences with various legislatures is just so high, um, and and that can't as much as I love the initiative, you cannot you can use it to check government and to set the right parameters a lot of times and create you know the right playing field. But we have to have people working for us in government as our representatives, and we don't have that. And and so the initiative process is a hugely important tool that we've got to use more and more effectively. But ultimately, we have to part of what we have to do is create a situation in which we have actual representatives in government. And I think that's I think that's getting smaller districts places, but there has to be a there has to be an embrace of more of a role than a spectator. And the more, you know, I sometimes I think about, I'm, I'm kind of a news junkie. I've thought about just stopping watching any TV political stuff just because I don't want to, I don't want to be thinking even for an instant as a spectator. I don't want to have an opinion on what he said or what she said, but on the underlying issue and on how we find a way to get that issue done. And that's almost never convincing everyone else that we're right. It's almost always finding the other activists who agree with us, not just people who agree with us, activists who agree with us and going out and doing it. Not asking anybody for permission, not convincing anybody you're doing the right thing, finding people who already agree with you and making a plan and going to get it done. Well, speaking of going to get it done, we're over an hour in, and we've done three of five of your pieces this last week in Common Sense. Well, and I think we've done enough, because I think the fine people of our land have have, uh, have had enough fun for tonight, but I want to mention the two pieces we didn't get to, because I hope uh, folks will go read them. Uh, the first one is Something to Hate, and it's really about this idea in Scotland that maybe there ought to be a law that allows them to stop you from saying hateful things at your dinner table. Making any statement that, you know, diminishes anybody racially, ethnically, gender, homophobia, whatever. It's about the worst idea you could ever imagine that the police really need to now come in and tell us what we can say at our dinner table. But that's where the world is heading more and more, it seems. The other one is love in their hearts. And I think this may be the most important commentary of the week. So Ruben Navarrete is a 
columnist now, has been a reporter, worked for CNN, was let go at CNN, and makes it very clear that he was let go because he wouldn't stop talking about the mistreatment of immigrants, children being put in cages, separated from their families, so on and so on. Now, our listeners probably are wondering, what are you talking about? That gets talked about all the time. Well, you see, Navarrete was doing it back when Obama was president. And he makes it very clear that he was not allowed to say bad things about Obama. This is America. This is American big media. And he is told not to talk about the issue. The same issue that has been talked about nonstop for the last four years, he was told not to talk about because it's not the issue that's important. It's, apparently, it's not so bad for kids to be separated or put in cages. It just depends on who does it, a Republican or a Democrat. That is sick. And you should go to thisiscommonsense.org and read Love in Their Hearts. This has been This Week in Common Sense for the first full week of November 2020. My name is Timothy Verkula. You've just been listening to Paul Jacob and me talk about the big stories that have appeared this week on thisiscommonsense.org. You should go there. That's all you really need to know. We're done. <laughs>